0: Matthew 13, 1 through 23, the topic, when the nation of Israel rejected Jesus, he told the parable of the sower to explain to his disciples God's new program for spreading the gospel. The title of our message is, The Sow Must Go On. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us, carved out for us in our week, Lord, so that we could hear the word of God read out loud so that it could penetrate our hearts, uh, so that it could empower and bless and strengthen us. And I pray that anything I say about it, Lord, obviously very secondary, very in the background, uh, but that it would be accurate and true and that it would help our understanding rather than hinder it. Have your way in our lives, in our hearts, and especially if there are those here that don't know you yet, Lord, they haven't made the commitment to trust you as their savior fully and completely, may today be the day of their salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, Amen. Amen. Have you experienced that moment when spelling things out loud to each other no longer keeps your kids or grandkids from understanding what you're saying? Amen. Be careful, it can be awkward. My folks kept me uninformed by speaking a kind of broken Italian to one another on those occasions when there were secrets to be kept. Jesus had a language. He had a form of spelling things out that was meant to reveal truth to his disciples while concealing it from his enemies. The language I'm referring to was parables. Now, when we think of parables, we think in terms of the dictionary definition, which is a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. Illustrations usually help reveal meaning, but that's not so in the case of parables. Jesus will make it clear that he used parables to speak to his disciples in a way that his enemies could not understand. Why would he do that? We're gonna see that his enemies had rejected him as their king, and they had rejected the kingdom that he would have established had they received him. He would be returning to heaven to await a second coming to earth when he would be received as king and when he would establish the kingdom. In between those two comings of Jesus Christ, something previously unknown to mankind was going to occur. Jesus will call it his church in chapter 16. The church and the church age between the two comings of Jesus was a mystery that Jesus needed to reveal to his disciples, but that he wanted to conceal from his enemies until after he was crucified. He spelled it out as it were in parables that only believers could understand. There are seven parables in this chapter and while I wish we could look at how they are all connected, today we'll only look at the first and the most famous, the parable of the sower. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the age in which you live was a mystery Jesus concealed from his enemies through parables. Number two, the age in which you live was a mystery Jesus revealed to his disciples through parables. Now, we're going to start in verses 10 through 15 with the enemies of Jesus uh, because it makes more sense logically to look at it this way. So, Stay there in verse 10 while I read to you verses one through three. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house, sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him. So they got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables. And then you read in verse 10, and the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Speaking in parables was something brand new, something Jesus had not done previously. It was a whole new way of communicating that the disciples didn't see coming. It was so unusual that their first question wasn't, what does the parable mean? It was, why do you speak in parables? And that's pretty telling. You and I, we read this, we immediately want to know what the parable means. But the disciples who heard this for the first time, they said, Jesus... Why are you doing this? And it puts us on notice that this is a a real departure from what the Lord had been doing. So he says in verse 11, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. A word about the word mysteries. In the Bible, a mystery is something previously unknown and unknowable that was being revealed. Revealed. In Colossians 1.26, for example, Paul the Apostle speaks of the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. And so to us, a mystery is something that uh, we figure out given certain clues. But when the Bible says mystery, it means something that was unknown, unknowable. It's not hidden anywhere to find out. It is being revealed for the first time. Uh, And that's what Jesus said is happening in this chapter. Something was getting ready to happen that was previously unknown and unknowable. God's activities on the earth while Jesus is in heaven awaiting his second coming are the mysteries of the kingdom revealed in these seven parables. His disciples would understand the parables, but his enemies, those who had rejected him, would not. Jesus would be spelling it out as it were for the saved. And so let's start with his enemies in verses 10 through 15. The disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and uh, shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and ears uh, and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. This is a quote from the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah. It related a time in Israel's past when the Jews refused to receive God's word. Jesus said it was also a prophecy that was being fulfilled in his day as the Jews were rejecting him. Now, if you've been here for our studies in Matthew, you know that this didn't just happen out in a vacuum. In chapter 12... Uh, things sort of come to a head. Jesus has been going around for some time doing miracle after miracle, performing exorcism after exorcism, signs and wonders following his powerful preaching of the word of God. And the religious leaders look at that and they say, well, you're doing that in the power of the devil. And Jesus says, you guys are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And then they come back to him and they say, well, okay, show us a sign, which was an insincere request because he had shown them thousands of signs that proved that he was the Messiah. And so Jesus says, these people have heard the word of God. In fact, going back even farther, They've had the witness of John the Baptist. They've heard the voice of God the Father from heaven. They've seen my miracles, signs, and wonders. They've had the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their midst. They've seen Satan defeated right in front of their very eyes. I can't say any more or show them any more than I've already said and shown. They've hardened their hearts, and so now they're not going to be able to see or hear anything from this point on. I'm gonna speak to you clearly, but to them in parables. This is not a general teaching that there will be certain people unable to hear the gospel and see Jesus. It's a very specific prophecy about the people of Jesus' day who saw all these things and heard his teachings but made a personal choice to reject him. They had hardened their hearts to the word and to the works of God. They had rejected the light so they would be given no more light but rather would be left in the dark. Even what they had would be taken away, meaning in part that their king would ascend into heaven and leave them without a kingdom. The disciples were looking forward to the kingdom of heaven on earth They often argued over who would be the greatest in it. They expected Jesus to establish it They wanted to know their positions As late as his ascension into heaven just before Jesus was taken into heaven leaving them The disciples were still asking if it was going to be established on the earth And so Jesus begins to turn his attention to preparing his disciples for the delay of the literal kingdom on earth. He didn't stop ministering to others, but his focus was on the disciples who would carry on the work of spreading the gospel. Now, as we understand all of this, one thing to realize is that the time of the parables ended relatively quickly. It only lasted from this point until Jesus was crucified. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't read the parables or that we don't learn from them. They are a rich vein of spiritual knowledge. I'm saying that Jesus Christ's disciples are not to keep anything secret. I'm saying that we are in the church age described by these seven parables, and we ought to be about the business of evangelizing. The gospel, all of it, is to be preached and explained in the clearest possible terms. For example, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached the first sermon of the church age in which we are still living, did he use parables to hide that truth from the audience? No, he did not try to conceal the truth. He preached Christ and him crucified for our sins and risen from the dead on the third day. In that huge Pentecost crowd, there were certainly Jews who had been the enemies of Jesus, who had been spoken to in parables they could not understand at the time, but the time of the parable, concealing truth had passed, and the gospel was now going out to all of them, to whosoever would believe, with clarity and with the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And so that's, that's what's happening in this chapter. It's a very interesting, very important turning point, not just in the ministry of Jesus, but in the history of the world. The rest of chapter 13 will give us an overview of the church age in which we're in, those seven parables, beginning with uh, the parable of the sower. The mystery age starts with and continues by the preaching of the gospel, and that's represented by a sower going forth to sow. Uh, other parables, like for example, in verses 47 through 50, there's the parable of the dragnet, not the TV series, but of the fishing dragnet, where you would throw the net out into the water, pull it back, and there'd be all kinds of different fish in it. You watch The Deadliest Catch on TV? Uh, they sometimes get the wrong kind of crab or there's an octopus or a codfish or something in there that that doesn't belong and they have to sort that out. And the parable of the dragnet is looking to the end of the age at the coming of Jesus Christ when believers and non-believers will have to be sorted out. In another passage in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus says it's like uh, separating sheep from goats. And so we'll see if we're here next week, if the rapture hasn't taken place, the Lord willing, we're all together, we'll see those other parables and how they outline the church age. But the parable of the sower, crucial, because it describes activity that starts the age we're in and that will go on in that age right up until the second coming of Jesus. And so uh, back in verse one, on the same day, Jesus went out of the house, sat by the sea, "'Great multitudes were gathered together to him "'so that he got into a boat and sat, "'and the whole multitude stood on the shore. "'Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, "'Behold, a sower went out to sow. "'And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, "'and the birds came and devoured them. "'Some fell on stony places "'where they did not have much earth. "'Then they immediately sprang up "'because they had no depth of earth.' But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now let's get right to Jesus' own comments about the parable. He tells us what is important to notice about it. Verse 16, blessed are your eyes for they see, and your ears for they hear. As much as his enemies could not decipher the language of parables, the disciples were meant to understand them. Verse 17, For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The prophets and the righteous of the Old Testament all spoke of the time their Savior would come. They looked forward to it down the corridors of history. They could only see it by faith as God revealed his word to their hearts. As privileged as they were, the first century followers of Jesus were more privileged. They could see Jesus, they could hear him and feel him and fellowship with him in ways no previous saint could have truly experienced. And I believe Jesus, there's a couple of times at least in scripture, this is one of them, the night before he was crucified is another, where he's very concerned about the disciples, especially the 11 that he's leaving behind because they, they don't really understand uh, fully that he's going to be gone. Uh, and you have to understand that these guys, they had thrown in with Jesus. They believed him 100%. They'd left everything to follow the Lord. They were fully expecting the kingdom to be established. They had no idea Jesus would be rejected by the religious leaders. And Jesus started telling them that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to be gone. Uh, he said, I'll, I'll send you another comforter like myself after I go. But, but imagine just the kind of, I guess we would call it separation anxiety you would have if you were one of the disciples. With what, even if your expectations were wrong, still you, you're, you're troubled by the fact that the Lord's going to be gone. And the Lord loved them and was trying to minister and say, hey, you guys, you, you guys are really super privileged. You've seen the fulfillment of so many things. Uh, just hang on to that, remember that when I'm gone. Uh, And and so he ministers to them in a way that we don't really need to be ministered to because we we got saved later in the church age, been filled with the Holy Spirit and have that connection with Jesus Christ. He was gonna leave them, return to heaven for a time. With Jesus in heaven, the kingdom of heaven is not now a visible earthly organization existing in a specific place. Understand that we talk about the kingdom of God being established on the earth, we're talking about Jesus Christ literally ruling and reigning the physical earth from Jerusalem in Israel and the nations of the world giving homage to him. It's, it's a real kingdom, just like we have real governments and real brick and mortar buildings today. The kingdom of heaven we're talking about here is not a visible earthly organization existing in a specific place. The kingdom of heaven is the rule of God in the hearts of believers through the power of his word and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The disciples would be commissioned to go into the whole world preaching the gospel. Their mission could not ultimately fail, but they would meet with varying degrees of success as would others after them until the coming of the Lord. And so Jesus, in order to give them a full picture of this, he compares the work that they were gonna embark on to a sower sowing seed in the soil. And so verse 18, therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives heed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on the stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The first sower was Jesus, then his immediate disciples, the guys that he's talking to here, followed by all the disciples ever made after them, which would be whosoever believes in him, including you and I. So you and I today are the sowers of the seed of the gospel. The seed is the word. The soil represents the hearts of men. Just like a seed, the word of God has life within it. It simply needs to be broadcast in order to accomplish its purpose. Scholars point out that parables can be a little tricky because every detail in a parable doesn't necessarily represent something hidden. We need, therefore, to be careful to not go beyond the teaching of the parable. Want to understand the parable in its context, why it was given, get the main teaching, make sure we're not making up stuff that isn't in the text or verifiable from other scriptures, uh, and just kind of get the main idea. If you wanna know where to start figuring out more about this parable, I'd suggest it's with the word here. It's repeated 19 times in this chapter. That level of repetition in such a small area is highly significant. A lot of times people say, how can I read the Bible and get more out of it? Do repetitive reading. Take a small section of your Bible. If you have a Bible that's cut up into paragraphs, Take a paragraph and read it. Read it again and again and again and again. Read it 10 times. Read it 20 times. Maybe not all in a row, but keep reading it over and over again. And one of the things, one of the very first things that jumps out at you is repetition. You'll suddenly say, man, didn't I just read the word here like 18 other times? And that kind of repetition is important. It's God's way of saying, hey, think about this for a little bit. Meditate on this. See what this might lead to. Now, uh, this word here, we can think in terms of the four soils as four different people who hear, or we can think of them as one person who hears the word at different times in his or her life. Let me demonstrate how it can be true of one person. We all know people who maybe seemed completely hardened to the gospel, as if the devil snatched it away, but who later came to Christ. In fact, many of us have that testimony. You can remember times when you heard the word of God preached or taught, you were handed a tract, you were witnessed to, but nothing came of it, and then later on in life, you got saved. No one person, it seems, therefore, is limited to one type of heart throughout their lifetime. For the sake of our discussion this morning, let's think about four different people hearing the word. The first thing to notice is that all of them are said to hear the word in a way that makes them responsible for what happens next. You read this and you see a responsibility on the part of these individuals to react to the word. In this, I see the grace of God at work upon each and every human heart to make it possible to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. God must take the initiative of bringing people to salvation by calling all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. He must enable those who hear the gospel to respond to it positively in faith. Unaided by the grace of God, man cannot choose to believe the promise of salvation held out in the gospel. As Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But thanks be to God, Jesus also said in John 12, 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of his crucifixion, I will draw all people to myself. The Father and the Son draw all people to Jesus, enabling them to come to Jesus by faith. Now, it doesn't mean everybody is saved. What the Lord is saying is that something happened on the cross that frees the grace of God to have an effect on the heart of every person, enabling them to respond to the gospel. The Holy Spirit has come to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, so he's at work on every heart as well. Even though non-believers are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart, the Lord opens people's hearts to respond positively to the gospel message and his kindness leads those with hard hearts towards repentance. In his sovereignty, we read, he has even positioned people for the very purpose that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God frees our will to either believe or to not believe. As I said earlier, we hear the word in a way that makes us responsible for what happens next. The question is always asked, Why do some people respond to the gospel and get saved while it seems that others do not? Well, not that it seems, when others do not. In the end, the answer to that question cannot be given. It remains a mystery in our normal sense of the word. It's something we're never going to be able to figure out because only the word of God can discern between the soul and the spirit. I can't look into another person's heart and understand why one why they might respond to the Lord, why they might not respond to the Lord. And that's not my business. God doesn't give this parable. Jesus didn't give this parable to, to help us understand that he said, just go and broadcast the word, and it will find these four responses. Now, obviously a lot has been written about well, these various soils, but I think a simple key is. The most simple key is to notice they represent three adversaries or three influences which you immediately recognize when you put them together. In the first case, the devil snatches away the word. In the second case, the problem could be called the flesh Because these people are unwilling to sacrifice or suffer in their flesh for the sake of Jesus Christ, physical ease is preferred to spiritual growth. Can you imagine what the next problem is if the first two are the flesh and the devil? Well, it's the world. The problem is the world, the cares of this world. The world and the flesh and the devil, one is an outer enemy, the other is an inner foe, the third is a relentless adversary. These are our problem uh, as a result of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. Now, we always think of these three as our spiritual foes after we are saved. You get saved, you receive Christ as your savior, and people say, hey, now you've got the devil on you and the world is gonna draw you away and your own flesh is gonna be a problem. And that's true. As a believer, we do need to contend with those three, but they are also the enemies of non-believers and they influence the freed will against receiving Jesus Christ. Now, this is so important that I wanna give you biblical examples. We have in the Bible, first of all, the story of the rich young ruler. He wanted to follow Jesus, but when the Lord told him to sell all that he had and follow him, he did what? He went away sorrowfully because he had many possessions, the Bible says. The world exerted too great an influence upon him and he chose to resist the grace of God at that moment in his life. And so he's an example of God freeing the will to believe but of the world causing interference. And maybe this helps explain why sometimes at least it's after a person has lost everything that this world has to offer that they respond favorably to the grace of God. The world can no longer exert its influence upon them. There are stories, not biblical, but there are stories in church history about the rich young ruler being Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, or maybe Barnabas, who was a prominent character in the book of Acts. And as I said, we can't prove that. They're probably not true. But what could be true is that at a later time, this same rich young ruler heard the Gospel again and did receive the Lord. I mean, you believe that, right? He went away sorrowful, but that doesn't mean that he went away eternally. And, and it may be that he was Mark, it may be he was Barnabas, it may be he was just an unnamed individual who continued to reject the Lord or who at a later time opened his heart to receive the Lord. Then there's the case of the Hebrew Christians who are written to in the book of Hebrews. Because of severe persecution, By both Romans and fellow Jews, they were stumbling and falling back into Judaism. They wanted to be Christians, but in a secret way by continuing as Jews so that they weren't persecuted anymore. They're an example of God freeing the will, but of the flesh interfering because they didn't want to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. As for an example of the devil snatching away the word, we would cite the crowds that followed Jesus. When the Lord started talking about a deeper commitment to discipleship, when he started talking about carrying the cross, most of the crowd quit following him because they were shallow. Jesus was fun to follow when he was feeding you and healing you and, and he was taking on the religious leaders who you didn't like anyway. But when he turned to you and said, pick up your cross and follow me, they say, hey, That's, you know, that's not for me. Very shallow profession. And so Jesus is here preparing his disciples for the age between his two comings. They would preach the gospel like farmers broadcasting seed. There was life in the seed, but still many hearers would resist it. Nonetheless, a sower ought not to become discouraged. It is the job of the sower to sow, not to create the results. And while there would be many throughout the church age who would resist the gospel, it would also produce an amazing harvest. Verse 23 says, "But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word, understands it, bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30." I read that farmers in the first century would be ecstatic to get a ten-fold return on their seed. That would be awesome. This, then, is a promise of incredible blessing throughout the church age. And I don't know, how would you calculate how many billions of people have come to Christ uh, from the day of Pentecost until today? Uh, I mean, it's amazing. Just in China alone, there are hundreds of millions of Christians right now. Uh, And so this harvest is ongoing, The parable of the sower doesn't teach that only 25% of people will be saved, not at all. It commands us to broadcast the word of God so that people everywhere will hear it and by God's grace be freed to respond to it and they will respond to it in one of these four ways and they can change the way they respond to it over the course of their lifetime. Look at yourself before you were saved and you'll see times you heard the gospel and the devil snatched it away immediately. I know this happened to me. Uh, One of the things I remembered right after I got saved, I don't know why, but it's still in my mind. I can almost see it playing out was a time at uc riverside when i was walking across campus and two guys from campus crusade for christ came up and wanted to share with me the four spiritual laws and they gave me their track and they actually took me through it and read it to me and i just blew them off and threw it in the trash and kept going and so at that time i had i apparently the 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 heart that i had was one that was uh shallow and e- the you know the word was easily snatched away other times that you caved into the flesh Other times when you desired the things of the world more than the things of God. But then there was that time when you heard the gospel and it found that your heart was good soil, it took root, you got saved, and you've been walking with the Lord from that day forward. You said yes to God, drawing you to Christ. You repented of your sins. You were born again into the family of God. Now, as believers... As I mentioned earlier, you still battle the world, the flesh, and the devil, but now you do it from a place of victory with the empowering of God, the Holy Spirit, living within you. The Lord is coming back. Before he does, he's going to return and resurrect and rapture his church. We are to be uh, busy doing what? Sowing the word of God. That's all. That's a lot, but that's all. Whether you want to do the, you know, the Great Commission, go into all the world preaching the gospel, or if you want the illustration of the sower going forth, I like the sower because it limits my responsibility. I just have to get out there with the word and let it do its work in the hearts of men and women and children and believe that when Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell could not prevail against it, That no matter what limited success or even failure I might think I have, God's program is unfolding right on schedule, right according to plan. And we just need to be looking up for the return of the Lord and being about the Lord's business, uh, spreading his kingdom from heart to heart. Amen? All right, let's pray together.